I'm Julianne DeLynn Hatton, and you're listening to Faith and Reason on the Mormon Faircast. This series will discuss the Prophet Joseph Smith and the authenticity of the gospel he restored. I'll be speaking with Michael R. Ash, author of the book of Faith and Reason, 80 Evidences Supporting the Prophet Joseph Smith. Welcome, Michael Ash. Hi, Julianne. You've got a little bit of a cold this week? I do have a little bit of cold this week, and uh, maybe it's uh, showing up still in my voice. (laughs) You sound fine. Thanks. We're talking about doctrines of the gospel this week. Tell me why you decided to put this chapter in of Faith and Reason, 80 Evidences Supporting the Prophet Joseph Smith. Well, there's a lot of uh, things that are unique or, or fairly unique to the LDS faith, and uh, these were things that were restored by Joseph Smith, and there's evidence that the teachings are accurate or were part of early Christianity, and um, if the church is true, then it would make sense that Joseph actually restored teachings that were known by the early Christian faith themselves, the members uh, back in Christ's day and shortly after he was crucified. In order for this restoration to occur, there had to have been a falling away. Correct. Let's talk about the apostasy. Okay. Describe the apostasy. Well, the apostasy, uh, and it really is translated as falling away. It, uh, in fact, it, it also is translated as revolt. Um, in uh, it's used at least versions of the word is used in, in military sense too. It can be used a, as a revolt against something, a turning away, um, and uh, in the early Christian faith, it refers more to a falling away. It's not necessarily a, a revolt for the most most of the members that were there. And basically, as Latter-day Saints, we believe, as just kind of a general outline, is that the church fell away from the pure teachings that were given uh, by Christ to the apostles, and that as they died, as the leadership died, that the authority went with them, and so you did not have leaders that were ordained by the hierarchy of the church, and and pretty soon, you know, you have that trickle-down effect problem. You know, if it were to happen now, you know, you wouldn't have the keys of, let's say, the prophet, they couldn't uh, bestow those keys upon area authorities, and then on to stake presidents and bishops, and, 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 and on down the line, and pretty soon it all kind of falls apart. There has been a picture painted in some of early LDS literature that everybody pretty much after the early church disappeared was kind of evil and that uh, they, they were against Christ's teachings until the restoration came. And then that's not accurate. We find um, from the teachings of modern day prophets as well as from the teachings of the scriptures that uh, we know that God loves all his children. He's loved his children, um, you know, in in times prior to Christ, uh, in restoration times, and also during the, the period when there was no authority on the earth. And so Heavenly Father would have uh, seen fit to bless the righteous with the Holy Spirit and guidance, just, just like non-members now can receive the Holy Ghost for direction in their lives. Well, the same would have been true for, you know, some of the early church leaders, popes, 
members, bishops, you know, pastors, and so forth, uh, both in early Catholicism, Orthodox, and even in Protestantism. And so as Latter-day Saints, we have to recognize that the people that lived during the apostasy would have done the best that they could have with the light that they had, and, and many times accomplished great works, such as keeping the Bible for, you know, uh, for a couple of thousand years, practically, you know, keep it alive, and, and so that uh, modern readers would have it. And so we do see the hand of the Lord in it. But what was missing was the keys. They did not have the uh, prophets. They did not have keys to answer some of the difficult questions, and they did not have the keys to perform sacred binding ordinances such as baptism. When people talk about the Dark Ages, then is that a term you would not recommend using? Yeah, it's it's really uh, kind of a pejorative, you know, looking back on it now. Uh, there was enlightenment. I mean, it wasn't dark. There, there, was, uh, there was always light. Whenever people are righteous and seeking truth, Heavenly Father is going to be there to guide them. They're not going to have uh, the full truth. I mean, we don't have the, all the full truth now. That's why we have modern-day prophets still to lead us. And so people have bits and pieces of light according to their faith and according to, um, you know, what their hearts are desiring and, 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 their, and what they righteously seek for. And so it's not a not a a good way to describe that is is the dark ages anymore that that's used in in past times and nowadays we can look back and see that uh, that doesn't accurately reflect what those people uh, would have uh, understood about the gospel when we talk about the bible there were prophets that did predict there was going to be a falling away do you want to talk about some of the prophets Sure, yeah, we, we read this actually several times in um, the New Testament scriptures. Uh, you know, Jude talked about how there was some that were, uh, they were contending or arguing for the faith, and there were uh, uh, certain people creeping in to pervert the faith. Uh, Peter warns that there were false prophets among the people and false teachers. And, and again, we have to remember, this is in a time where you didn't have phone calls and emails and texts and, and even some of the close proximity that uh, we've enjoyed since the restored church or in more modern times. And so, uh, you know, we, when we read about the, how the uh, apostles had to travel to preach the gospel, you know, that they set up basically what we would call today stakes and wards and, and you know they, they set up churches in the local areas and they didn't always have these direct communications and that's why thankfully some of these letters have survived uh, from the New Testament apostles but uh, people were still trying to sort things out and uh, you're going to have strange ideas introduced many times because people are trying to reconcile these new Christian teachings with the teachings that they grew up with or the, from their surroundings. And, and uh, so you, you kind of have the problem of philosophy, which we see even going on today. You know, people arguing about some of the less important things, and we have offshoots of the church and, and th that have political agendas. And even today, we, we have groups that um, are, are trying to pull members away that, that claim to be members themselves, and that they have the secret teachings that the prophets don't tell you about or, or, or don't know themselves. And so these things have always been going on. And so I think that's what's happening here. And so when we read about Peter talking about these false teachers 
or uh, Paul talking about wolves, you know, that come in sheep's clothing and they pervert the truth. You know, some of these people might have been evil, but many times they were probably people that were trying to find their way. And unfortunately, because of the persecutions and stuff, especially that happened later on, uh, there wasn't an easy way to correct these things. And so uh, many times the different branches of churches fell into error because they went the route that made the most sense rather than having somebody with the keys of authority to correct them. But yeah, the, the New Testament talks about it, and other churches have, have noticed this. I mean, it, this isn't something that has been uniquely noted by Latter-day Saints, um, that there is a, a falling away or, or, or trouble brewing in the New Testament church. Why did you think it was important to use the phrase, having itching ears, in this chapter? Well, because uh, in, in uh, this is again from Paul, he talks about, uh, uh, he writes to Timothy and says, the members will not endure sound doctrine, but after own lust they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned to fables. Well, when you have an itch, whether it's an ear or anywhere else, you got to scratch it. You know, it, it, it bugs you and you have to take care of it. And so itching ears, basically they have, what Paul is saying is they have ears that are uh, are, are, are fickle. They're, they're looking for something that, that pleases them, that scratches their itch. And um, again, we see this happening today. Uh, you know, sometimes there's these uh, faith-promoting rumors that show up on the internet or sent out in emails. And boy, they sound really exciting. They get passed around, but they're not true. And, uh, you know, people like to to hear these sometimes outlandish stories or, or, or supposed deep, dark secrets. And, uh, you know, rather than focusing on the simple aspects of the gospel. And so we see this happening again in the early church. And uh, pretty soon the people had turned to these fables, to these untruths, because they sounded more exciting. They satisfied the itching ear rather than the simple truths of the gospel. Was there also an aspect that Christ had been killed, the apostles were being hunted down, that the original church was wanting to blend in as well, in part to preserve their lives? Sure, that's, that's an excellent point. Culturally, they would have blended in, you know, pretty much already as much as possible. And, and so it's difficult to stand out as a Christian with some of these beliefs when you're being persecuted. And, and again, it's, it's easy for us in our days to, to sit back on our, our couches and comfortable homes and say, well, you know, I, I would have, I would have died to stick up for my beliefs. Well, that's, that's easy to do. But when, you know, all of a sudden your children are involved, your spouse, your, your family and everything, and you're going to be killed unless you renounce these things and return to the ways of kind of the state religions and, and forsake Christianity. Some people we know died for their beliefs, but other people it was more difficult. And again, it's, it's you know, we can't judge those people uh, until we're put in our shoes and how many of us um, would really have the guts to stick up to it or, or maybe um, lie and say, yeah, we'll, we'll live the state religion and then do it in secret. I think a lot of that went on as well as the Christians. You know, sometimes you would have to tell a story to the government and say, yeah, we're not going to practice it, but then you do it in secret. And of course, do it in secret makes it difficult to uh, have meetings as often, to discuss things as, as frequently as you can, and to kind of feed that church environment. So even if you're doing it in secret, eventually those things uh, tend to be snuffed out. 
Yes, and it didn't end well for Peter, Paul, or John. No, no, it didn't end well for them or, you know, thousands of Christians as well that, uh, um, you know, either went into hiding or, or, or did it in openness is that they were persecuted and killed, sometimes uh, saw horrific ends. Let's talk about John a little bit. He was writing the book of Revelation and basically chastising most of the churches in Asia, right? Yeah, that's correct. All but two of them, basically. And he's saying that, you know, they're all falling away. Uh, this is the of the seven churches in Asia. And, and um, the New Testament scholars talk about kind of the bleak look that he has uh, for the church. And, and John actually talks about his time as being the last days. He, he, he says in, in uh, um, 1 John 2, 18 through 19, little children, it is the last time. And his year... Uh, as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. So he saw the difficulty that was around him, and he saw that uh, um, the, the church was struggling. And, you know, he may not have known completely to what end this might have come about, but I think he had his fears that if something didn't happen soon, that there was going to be, uh, you know, some sort of uh, uh, death, at least, to the organized uh, religion, and that's really what happened. Like I said, it didn't kill off righteous people completely. There's there's always been righteous people, people that have been touched by the Spirit and guided by it, but it killed off the organization as far as having the power, the authority, and and, and what sprang from that in the transition in order to try to keep as much light glowing as possible was the Roman Catholic Church, and we have to. You know, uh, I always have had a, a admiration and very great respect for the Catholicism because, like I said, uh, thanks to the people that were involved um, throughout the history of the Catholic Church, that there were so many teachings and the Christian history and the Bible that that did survive. Uh, unfortunately, like I said, the keys were lost, and and so error crept in, and that's really why. There was an apostasy, and that's really why there was a need for a restoration. The restoration was just to add light to what was already there. It didn't replace uh, the teachings that survived through Catholicism and, and were picked up again in Protestantism. It was to add light uh, for those pieces that were missing and, and give a more complete picture and restore the keys to the sacred ordinances. As we talk about the apostasy, how does that directly relate back to evidence supporting the prophet Joseph Smith in your book? Well, there is evidence, and like I said, recognized by a number of other scholars that a falling away in apostasy had taken place. And the only way to correct that completely is through a restoration. Now, the Protestant Church uh, recognized that actually to some degree as well. And um, their directives or their, their idea was to fix things, uh, to protest against the errors in the church and to fix them. But the problem is, is uh, you know, if you, again, if you look at it as a government authority, if there's no keys of the government and it's not handed down to the to to the uh, governor and the mayor and, and, and uh, you know, city councilmen and so forth, there's, there's no line of authority 
Uh, somebody can't just start one up on their own and have that authority. The authority has to come from somewhere, and that's what made the restoration necessary. And like I so said, just from a historical standpoint, uh, it, it seems obvious to a number of people, in, including non-LDS scholars, that some sort of apostasy had happened. There's different views on how that was corrected, but if an apostasy really took place and that line of authority was cut, it had to come and be restored from somebody that actually had the authority, which gives evidence to Joseph Smith's position that uh, Peter, James, and John are the ones that restored that authority back to the uh, restored church. How do you feel that the writings on the apostasy in the Book of Mormon complement the Bible, and do they? Yeah, they do, because we we learn from uh, the visions of uh, uh, Nephi that uh, there was a falling away, that there was, uh, you know, some things lost to the teachings that, uh, um, as far as the Word of God, that there was pieces that were, were glossed over, and there was pieces taken away, uh, changes made, and that the church had uh, fallen from that authority position again. And um, so it's a second witness. And if Joseph Smith uh, is a true prophet, then the Book of Mormon is true. And of course, then the teachings contained there are true as well. And it's interesting, it works in the other direction as well. If the Book of Mormon is true, then we know that Joseph Smith was a prophet. And, and of course, the, the greatest way, the, the most powerful way that we can know that the Book of Mormon is true is to read it and pray about it and, and receive that witness. And with it comes then the sure knowledge that uh, Joseph Smith was a, a prophet and that the teachings that are in there were restored. And that gives that second witness that apostasy had taken place, a restoration was necessary, and we see that all fulfilled in, you know, the uh, 1820s, 1830s, when uh, the angels began to visit Joseph Smith. Thank you, Michael Ash. Thank you, Julianne. Thanks for listening to Faith and Reason on the Mormon Faircast. I'm your host, Julianne DeLynn Hatton, inviting you to keep the faith. Michael R. Ash is the author of the book, Shaken Faith Syndrome, Strengthening One's Testimony in the Face of Criticism and Doubt, as well as the book of Faith and Reason, 80 Evidences Supporting the Prophet Joseph Smith. Faith and Reason is produced by Tom Hatton with music courtesy of Arthur Hatton. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You can support this podcast by subscribing to it in iTunes and by rating it and writing a review. Questions or comments can be sent to podcast at fairmormon.org or you may join the conversation at fairblog.org.